0: So i make no pretense. Definitely the second act, and it will not be at the level that he did. But I pray that I'll be able to contribute a little bit to your understanding about transcendent thinking. And to give you kind of a starting point to think about transcendence, um, how many of you have a swimming pool? A number of you have a swimming pool. All right, you know, you you usually have it in a, a yard behind your house correct, fenced-in area, okay, and you do that to keep people out, correct, and then when you invite people into that yard, then what you've done is you've invited them into your sphere of authority, and you have set the rules for how things are going to function in that sphere of authority, is that correct, and what happens if someone comes in and doesn't obey your rules? I'm sorry, you can't, get, you can't participate in swimming in my pool or be in my backyard. You're not following my rules. Well, that's a simple picture of what transcendence is like. You have a person who is outside the area, who is making the rules for that area, and if you don't abide by those rules, rules are consequences. So you can take that picture and you can apply that to creation. We have a physical universe that a creator has made that transcends it and he has now said, here are the rules of how it works. So that's what transcendence is. is that, does that help you kind of get a picture of transcendence? I know sometimes people say, what is transcendent? What does that mean? Well we need to be clear. We're talking about who's in charge or who makes the rules. Who has the authority to speak about this domain that we call creation, we call the physical universe, and make the rules? And we have only one person, and that is the creator of the universe. It's interesting to me that to watch um, the atheistic community, which uh, would be in opposition to this, uh, they don't really address this at all. This is just kind of ignored. And the way they try to dismiss this is try to claim that, well, You know, we're just a product of slime and time and things just happen and what's worked out is what works out best. And there's no rhyme or reason to anything. But we, as Christians, are living in a rational universe created by a rational God who has created the rules for how it's to to work. So what I'm going to talk about today, or attempt to talk about, is how do you live strategically in God's backyard and conduct business? So what are his rules? And I'm really just going to give you one value today. I'm going to try to keep it very simple. One value that I think is a key to being successful in the workplace. Now, how many of you work? Okay. Who who didn't raise their hand? If you didn't raise your hand, raise your your hand now. Okay. Why didn't you raise your hand? Disabled. Huh? Disabled, but you still work. You know? You may have some disabilities, but you still do things. Work is about doing things, doing tasks. Okay, who else raised their hand? Didn't raise their hand. Rhetorical question? Rhetorical question? Yeah. Oh, okay. All right, someone else other than Lakita. Usually the housewives don't raise their hands. Because they, they don't think they work. Did you guys see that video about moms? It was on the Internet or somewhere. My wife found it someplace. She finds these things. I don't. But it's just—it's an interview that's going on, and this guy is on the phone talking to various candidates for this job, and he's describing this job. He said, here's the position we have. Uh, this is a position that there's never any time off. Okay? You're on your feet constantly. All you're doing is serving and when you get off your feet, you get off your feet to clean up messes on the floor. And when holidays come, your workload doubles. Okay, And nobody's, nobody ever says thank you or shows any appreciation for it. And the, 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 the culmination of all this is you don't get paid. And everybody's saying, what idiot would want to do that? And, of course, they say, well, that's what moms do. That's, moms work harder than anybody. So, everybody works. Even if you are, quote, retired, which I would like to disabuse you of that and offer you a biblical view of retirement. Retirement is just another phase of life where you get to obey God. It's not the phase in life where you think you can go do what you want to do when you want to do it, how you want to do it. That's what the world tells you. No, retirement... It's another phase of life. And until you draw your last breath, you are here as his servant. And when he takes you home, the only thing you want to be able to say to him is, Father, I have completed the work you give me to do. And you, what you want to hear is, well done. Now, see, this is the level of thinking we've got to get to. It comes from understanding that we have a transcendent God who now has defined how we are supposed to live and work in this planet. So we're just gonna try to touch on what it is to work according to transcendent values this morning. So let me start out with an illustration here. This is a company, and who all here are investors? If you're an investor, raise your hand. Every one of you should have your hand raised. You invest your time, talent, and treasure every day. Everybody's an investor. And some of you do it professionally, which means you help others, you disciple others in how to invest. For example, if I'm functioning as an elder, I am trying to help people learn how to invest their time and their talent and their treasure in accordance with biblical principles. So if you are a professional investor in terms of financials, then you're helping people invest their money in terms of multiplying money. And God, God values a profit. So, I want to know if you will invest in this company. So, I'm going to describe this company to you. This is a company that the vision for the company was born by one of the, the industry leaders in the field that this company is going to operate in. Another characteristic of this particular company is got cutting edge technology. Potentially, you know, just an explosion of potential business that's going to come through this technology. It's also got a redoubtable CEO found one of the absolute most respected, successful CEOs in the world, and it's got some of the smartest people from the company that gave birth to this. This company that gave birth to this took some of its best talent and put in this startup company, go out and find the best CEO they can find, put in this startup company. Does this sound pretty good? Huh? Sound like something you might want to invest in? Well, it gets better. Then they hire the best marketing people they can find. Then to that they add an abundance of capital. They start out with ten million dollars in the bank day one. How would you like that? Who's done a startup here? here we started out with ten million dollars day one. Uh, most of us start out with gee, I have a thousand dollars, you know, five hundred dollars. No, ten million dollars in the bank, day one. All this talent, this vision, this CEO—you know, this formidable marketing strategy—and they have this incredible support from all these major companies around the world. Now, this sounds like a absolute no-brainer, doesn't it? I'm there, aren't you there? Oh yeah, everybody's all over that. You know Jim Cramer. You know who Jim Cramer is? Who knows who Jim Cramer is? A few of you know. He's a, an investment guru. He's on CNBC. He bought into this. And, of course, Jim is a hyper. You know, he hypes things. Uh, He got all over this, and was he was telling all his buddies and his friends, got on, you know, the TV and hyped this thing, it was a big deal. And so, then, reality comes. Here's what reality was. It was called the Internet. You see, this company, The Vision, as they thought about this vision, this was the early 90s, they really didn't... Think about the internet. What would the internet do to this business? They were going to develop this proprietary material and then suddenly, one day they kind of woke up and realized, wait a minute, this internet's going to impact this. And so as they began to look at it and evaluate it, the company began to get, you know, kind of confused. Now they, along the way, they had gone public before they developed even a product. Didn't even have a product, they had gone public. It was called a Hot issue. Who knows what a hot issue is? Oh, JT, what's a hot issue? It's an investment that everybody wants some of. And the underwriters are almost always oversubscribed. And so what they do is they cherry pick. They give it to their best clients. So a lot of little clients, like you and me, would never get a chance to get a piece of it, which means we would have been blessed. Okay? (laughs) Because this thing was not going the right direction. You see, they went public in '95. A year later, they're in trouble. And by '99, they're a penny stock. Who knows what a penny stock is? penny stock is not a stock that's worth a penny. No, that's not it. It's a terminology. A penny stock is a stock that's worth less than $5 a share. That's a penny stock. And that's considered to be a stock in trouble. So it's a penny stock by 1999. And then by 2002, it shut down. By 2004, it's liquidated. Over $90 million went into this. Big IPO, a lot of hype, a lot of manpower. By the way, a lot of these smart people that went from this major company to this company put millions of dollars into this company, and it failed. So why did it fail? What happened here? Well, let's take a look at what some of the pundits say. This is a book called Why Smart Executives Fail by Dr. Sidney Finkelstein, who I believe is a Jewish man. He is a professor of business at Dartmouth School of Business, and he is, um, he's done what professors do. Some of you may not know how the graduate world works, but what professors do is they use graduate students to do their work. That's what they do. Uh, my, I went through both a master's and a Ph.D. program, and my professor got two papers out of me. You know, My master's thesis was turned into a paper. My Ph.D. dissertation was turned into a paper. So that was my value to him was he got two papers out of me. Well, Dr. Finkelstein took his graduate students, and he used them to write this book. So as part of this project, they developed theories of why companies fail. So here's some of the theories they came up with. Number one is they failed because of stupid or poor leaders. Number two, they failed because of surprises, like the internet. Number three was failure to execute. Number four, a lack of effort. Number five, inadequate resources, or number six, unethical leadership. Now, Dr. Finkelstein was he's a wise man. He surprised me because he recognized as he looked at these, These are not adequate explanations. Now, what what we would say is, you're correct, they're symptoms. Now, he didn't call them symptoms. That's what we would call them. But he was smart enough to know there's got to be a common link. What is it that links all these together? So he began to look at this, and he answered the question this way. He said, before pride goeth before a... Now, what do you think he got that? Huh? What do you think he got that? Well, this little Jewish guy apparently was taught the Old Testament. And he read the book of Proverbs. He found it in Proverbs 16, verse 18. Pride goeth before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. So he reduced the core reason for failure by smart executives to one thing. Pride. Now, that's pretty amazing, isn't it? You know, one of the things that, that always fascinates me is when Jesus entered Jerusalem. And he's going in, and the religious leaders there are saying to him, you know, these your followers are here are praising you. You need to tell them to stop praising you. You know, they're singing praise to God, Hosanna to the highest, all this going on. And the religious leaders are not happy with this, so you need to tell your disciples to stop it. Remember what Jesus said to them? If I tell them to stop, then the stones will cry out. The stones are represent inanimate objects that don't have the capacity to cry, but the, the will of God is to reveal truth so strongly that even inanimate objects you know, will be used. So... What, what I see in that is a picture that when we as professing Christians are not true enough to the truth of the word of God, God will raise up a pagan mm-hmm. to bear witness to it. So I think on some level, perhaps this is what's going on here, that Dr. Finkelstein is articulating a truth that we believers have not done a very good job, job of articulating. We probably have tended to fall into the camp of coming up with one of those six or seven reasons why smart executives fail. And God says, no, you don't get it. I'm going to send this little Jewish guy here, and he's going to tell you the truth. The truth is, what is the root of all of these business failures? It's always the same. It's pride. It's pride. So if we want to get past this and to live well in God's universe, then what do we need to do? We need the opposite of pride. Would you agree? Yeah, we need to do it differently. Pride is not leading us to a result that we want, and we all want to have a successful business in terms of profitability, correct? Are you awake? Okay, I mean, you want that? Yeah. Those of you that are stewarding businesses, you want that. Those of you that work for businesses, you want your businesses to be profitable so they can pay you your paychecks. So we want profitable enterprises. Well, how are we going to do that? Well, when we remember this reality that God opposes the proud, then I want to find organizations and I want to utilize organizations. I want to be in organizations that are humble. That are humble. Now, what does the word humble mean? Well, it's interesting. If you look at the Greek word that's translated humble, it literally means to get low, to make low. So, in one definition, is to reduce to a plane. Okay? It's basically to eliminate all thoughts and actions that rise up against the transcendent principles and values of God. That's a good way to think about it. Isn't it? Anything that rises up against the transcendent principle or value of God. So, anything that's not sound theological thinking would be Something you want to make low. You want to humble yourself there. Humble yourselves in the sight of God and He will lift you up. James 4, verse 10. Now, what I want to do is talk about humility. This is the one thing. We want to just do one thing here. What what Curly said? One thing? Here's the secret. One thing humility. Humility in the workplace, humility in churches. You agree? Do you see humility in the leadership of your church? Really? Think about that. You know, I look at the situations I've been involved with over the years. I, I see a lot of pride going on. I see a lot of presumption. I see a lot of thinking that we know we have the answers. But By the way, Dr. Finkelstein, in his conclusions of his book, he lists the seven habits of spectacularly unsuccessful people. One of those habits is thinking that you know, that you've got the answers. Again, that's pride. You know, wisdom says, you know, I need to just assume that I probably don't know. In fact, one of the things that I've done over the years is I've been convicted of my own pride and arrogance, and that takes me to my knees very quickly, is to say this, you know, Lord, I think where I am is I need to not trust myself anymore. I've had people look at me like, what? Are you not you need to have confidence no i need to have confidence in him not to trust me so i think that's the transition we need that in our personal lives we need it in our families how we relate to our spouses we need to be very humble and be very quick to listen and that's one of the things i've really had to work on because i kind of thought i knew and my wife is showing me repeatedly i don't know what i think i know so i need to get really low there and really listen Likewise, in our Christian communities, we need to to recognize we don't probably know what we think we know. We need to really ask the Lord, show us what the truth is. We want you to define truth or reality. And then our companies, our businesses. You know, it's not about money. Business is not about money. The reason you're in business is because God has called you to be in business. The reason you work is because God has signed you there to be His person. The reason that you serve in public policy or in some political office is not because you want to be famous or you want to be influential. It's just because God has put you there. And so when you begin to see, okay, God is very sovereign, very intentional. He puts us where he wants us to be, to do what he's called us to do. We've got to follow his, his basic rules of his universe. And one of the most primary rules of his universe is humility. And one of the ways you can really easily see that is what happened in the garden. What happened there? What did they do? They got proud. Wasn't that what it was? They rose up and opposed the transcendent principles of God. Well, what's in Adam and Eve is in us because we're their descendants. So our job is now to get low and get humble about how to walk in God's universe and to not trust ourselves. I mean, the older I get, the more clear it is to me. I need a lot of help. In discerning the will of God. A few years ago, I was teaching a class at our church, and we got to a discussion on being in community. And there was a man there in the group that you could tell he was having a total disconnect with this discussion. And it came around to him and his time to talk, and his comment was, you know, well, I figure that if I need to know something, God's just going to tell me directly. That was his mindset. Well, sorry, one of God's transcendent principles is community. The first thing in Scripture that said is not congruent with God is in Genesis chapter 2, where it says, it is not good that man be alone. So right there, he tells you, you need to be a community. And one of the reasons is because the Trinity is a community. So we've, we've got to really, we've got to take on a much more humble spirit than we perhaps have been willing to in the past. So what I want to do is just give you some thoughts. And what I did was uh, when I was assigned this topic, I happened to be studying the book of James, which I am still studying. And so I thought, well, I'm just going to talk a little bit about humility from the book of James because James talks about humility. And so as I looked at it, I realized, you know, there are a lot of things in James that are symptoms of somebody who is humble. And so I just listed some of these. This is not an exhaustive list. This is just a representative list. For example, the proper use of the tongue. Wisdom from above, proper motives, the use of money as a tool of obedience, not worshiping money. Grace, which is the empowering presence of Christ, submitting to God, resisting the devil, and strategic planning as a tool to discern the will of God. Now, those are just listed in two chapters in James. You know, the rest of James has got other things that you can look at as well, but I just focused in on that. And I said, well, since I'm only gonna have a short period of time, let me just pick three and maybe I'll get one of the three done. So that was my strategy here, trying to be very humble about this. So I thought that I would focus in on wisdom from above, money and strategic planning. And we'll see how far I get. And I thought since by the time, I knew I was gonna be speaking probably after Dennis and you guys would probably be spinning, you know, and need something to kind of keep you awake, I thought what we'll do is we'll do an exercise together, and this will make it fun. Okay. <laughs> Since that's the big deal, you know. It's all about fun. I'm, so here's what we're going to do. We're going to have an exercise, and this is a tool that I've developed. It's called a wiseometer. A wiseometer, yes. A wiseometer. Okay. So what the wiseometer is. It's just I've taken these traits that are found in James chapter 3, and um, particularly in verses 13 through 18, and I'm going to convert those into a little tool where we can evaluate ourselves. So let me read this text here, and then we'll look at the tool, and I'm going to give you a suggestion on how to take the tool. I'm going to give you a humble suggestion on how to take this tool. Okay. And just a side point here. I want to chase this rabbit too far, and I'm trying to watch my timer. I'm trying to be really good here. Okay. When I first uh, became an elder at a church, uh, one of the things that I was studying under Dennis and really was so grateful for what I was learning, and I was anxious to take this to my fellow elders who were not all that fired up about what I was trying to share with them. And so we got to a discussion about how do we measure success. That's what we got to, and... So, basically, what are the things that you think they might have said? Okay? Well, some of you know the answer. Some of you that that have been around me, but you can't talk. Some of you that haven't been around me, you you could talk. What do you think they might have said? In fact, there are five metrics that are very common that generally are defined by success by most people in the church world. What do you think they might be? Huh? Money. Membership. Status. Number of people yeah programs staff in fact that's success you want you want to be growing in all five of those areas and you're considered to be a success in the church world. so I offered a different definition I said, well, it seems to me that the real success has got to be what Jesus did and he didn't do those things. he didn't build a big building and have big programs and have a big budget and you know in fact he died pretty much rejected by. Most everybody, he was homeless, he was pitiless, he was jobless, rejected by most people. Most people considered him an underperformer, an underachiever. I mean, he a man who could solve all the problems in the world, and he didn't do it. Wouldn't that be an underachiever? Yeah, I mean, you look at that and say, what's going on here? So I offered, this, my suggestion was, we need to measure discipleship. And what do you think they said to me? How do you do that? That's too subjective. So being a scientist by training, that became a challenge to me. So now I develop meters. And so this is just uh, this is one of my meters, one of my detection tools, trying to measure discipleship. So that's what it is. I have a lot of other tools. I've got a mammonometer, if you're interested. You know, measure mammon mammon in you. Rebellion meter, measure me- level of rebellion in you. Just there's a lot of different tools you can look at. And I try to tie all of them to Scripture, what Scripture says. So here's a text, James uh, chapter 3, that we'll use to kind of give us a taste of the wisometer. And and keep in mind, the wisometer, it's very limited to this text. We could go a lot broader, but I just kept it simple here. James 3 says this, Who is wise and understanding among you? Let him show it by good conduct, that is, his works done in the meekness of wisdom. By the way, the word meekness, I found a Vines dictionary definition of that I thought was really rich. Meekness is when you believe that God is working good in every situation. That's meekness. I thought that was really a rich definition. Okay, But if you have bitter envy and self-seeking in your hearts, do not boast and lie against the truth. This wisdom does not descend from above, but is earthly, sensual, demonic. For where there is envy and self-seeking... Confusion and every evil thing are there. But the wisdom that is from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, willing to yield, full of mercy and good fruits, without partiality, without hypocrisy. Now the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. So here you have the wisdom of the world versus the wisdom of God contrasted. So that's perfect for a meter, don't you think? Hey, that's something we can measure here. So we go to the next slide here, and we have the Wisometer. At least this is a version one of the Wisometer. And uh, on the left-hand column, you have wisdom from below that's listed in this text. And the right-hand column, the wisdom from above that's listed in this text. And i tried to do a little correlation. It doesn't perfectly correlate, but you can see the various traits. For example, every evil thing, and by the way, that literally means bad business or legal practice. That's what, literally what that word means. Okay. And the contrast is wisdom from above, which works done in meekness, truly pure works, and full of mercy and good fruits. So that would be a contrast of, obviously, every evil thing. And likewise, bitter envy on the left, the contrast is peace and gentleness, self-seeking on the left. By the way, by the way that word self-seeking means electioneering. Those of you in public policy, you know electioneering? You know what that is? What are you trying to do with electioneering? Trying to rig the ballot box, aren't you? That's electioneering. You know, you do that by, you know, looking at the voting districts. Say, oh, we we got to get all the Democratic districts all over here. So they, they're limited in what they can influence. So that's electioneering. So that's what it's talking about here, self-seeking. The, the opposite side, on the, the right side, is willing to yield and being impartial. And then the next three are confusion, lying, and boasting. And they're compared to being without hypocrisy. So you can see the contrast there. Now, here's what I would suggest you do. Use a score of 0 to 10, where 0 means I'm totally in agreement with the left side, and 10 means I'm totally in agreement on the right side, and you can use anything in between, because most people struggle and say, well, it's not quite a 10, maybe it's an 8, or maybe it's a 3, or whatever. So you can use any number you want. Now, here's the trick. If you want the truth, or, probably something closer to the truth than what you can do for yourself, you have your spouse do it for you. That's what you do. Yeah. Then you get closer to the truth. Because if your spouse really loves you, she will tell the truth. Now, can you, or excuse me, he or she, the spouse, yes. I'm thinking about myself, obviously, thinking about my wife as she sat here looking at this meter. I told her about this. So she knew it was coming, but she hadn't seen it. So now she's looking at it and she's thinking, okay, how am I going to score that for him? You know, Which I'll, I'll get the score later today. And if you see me really low later today, you'll know what happened. Yes, which, which won't be bad. I, if, if I'm low, I need to be low. So that's a good thing. So I want to invite you just to take a moment and do this. Do it for yourself, do it for your spouse. But just take a quick, quick look at this, and then we'll talk. It's okay. Time's up. So, anybody get through? Evaluate yourself or evaluate your spouse. Okay, we got some scores here. Who scored a hundred? Anybody score a hundred? Huh? Yeah. That would be like you know what happened with. With Jordan Spieth at the Masters, some some at the press conference, some uh, reporter said, can you talk to us about your humility? He says, how can I do that? <laughs> so nobody made 100. He might make 90. 90 or above. We, we got one. You say yes and she's denying it. You know something? I know you. I believe her. <laughs> Oh, but I but I still I believe her. I believe her. Michelle. I believe you. Totally believe you. All right. Anybody make eighty or above? Seventy or above? It's a Christian audience. I guess they're just not going to respond, huh? Anybody get a number? You did. You want to share your number? Forty. All right. That's, that's probably a pretty good score. It's a pretty honest score. You know, where most of us really are. If, if you really, would most of you agree that you're probably going to be scoring pretty low on this? So what does that tell you? What's the takeaway? We need a lot more transformation, don't we? We're a long way from thinking biblically. Uh, and let me just, this is one of my favorite texts to use in in training about how to view competition. You ever thought about this? Remember I shared this one time with people. I said, This is a great text to look at to think about how to how to view competition. Somebody came up to me last yes last time and said, What are you talking about? Well, competition. How do you view competition? Hmm? Kill The enemy? You know, don't we do, that's what we say, that's what we're trained, that's how the world would view it. You know, we've got to learn that God's ways, his transcendent values, are way beyond us. And our ability to comprehend them is very limited. And so we just take one, just take humility, and say, okay, can I get any sense of what it is to be truly humble before God? And we say, ooh, Wow. It is much more profound than I had ever thought. Would you agree with that? All right. Well, let me take, given I'm short on time, let me just go to the last point, which is James chapter 4, verse 13 through 17. We'll talk very quickly about strategic planning. Who here has done strategic planning? If you've done strategic planning, raise your hand. Okay. Why did you do strategic planning? You can't talk. Somebody else. Why did you do strategic planning? Why? To what? To accomplish something. To do what, though? What are you trying to do? Successfully accomplish Grow? Go make a bunch of money? Isn't that what you're trying to do? Yeah, that's what you're trying to do. Yeah, you're trying to go out there and make a bunch of money. All right, so let's just take a look at what, what James has to say about this. James chapter 4, verses 13 through 17. Now, come now, you who say, today or tomorrow, we will go to such and such a city, spend a year there, buy and sell, and make a profit. What do we call that? That's a business plan. That's a strategic plan to go make a bunch of money. And that's, hey, we anybody in business, that's what you're going to say. You may not want to admit it, but that's what you're doing. You're trying to go figure out how to make a bunch of money. Okay, and sadly, you know, the church world is rooting for you because of why? They want the overflow. Okay, so there's a, there's kind of a cahoots going on here. People working together, you know, instead of recognizing what planning really is. So let's see what the text says. Planning really is. He says this. But what, what is your life? Let me go back and let me just be catch up. Let me just read the whole thing here to be clear. Come now, you say today or tomorrow we will go to such a city, spend a year there, buy and sell, make a profit. Whereas you do not know what will happen tomorrow. Very true. You're not, nobody knows what's going to happen tomorrow. Even the prophets don't know. God may reveal a little peace to them. But they really don't know much in detail. But what is your life? It is a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes away. Instead, you ought to say. Now, we're still talking about business planning. If it is the Lord's will, we shall live and do this or that. But now you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. Therefore, to him who knows to do good and doesn't do it, it is sin to them. Do you see what he just said? He said, planning is a process of discerning the will of God. If you do anything other than that, you're in pride. If we were to back up in James 4, it says, it quotes out of the Old Testament, God opposes The proud. How many of you hire people? Is it on your list, on your hiring criteria, that you want a humble person? Is that on there? Because if it's not on there, you're probably going to hire somebody who's full of pride and God is opposing them. You hired them and God is opposing them. Now think about that. Hey, business is hard enough. I don't need to make it harder by hiring people that are in pride, that God is opposing. Now, why is God opposing them? For their good. He's trying to transform them. But most of us don't change without pain. In fact, the older I get, the more clear I am that one of the great marks of the Holy Spirit is pain. God is always doing something. And most of us, when we get things are going well and we're comfortable, and we're having fun, we don't think a lot about the Lord, do we? We don't think we need Him. No, but when the heat's on, what happens? We drop on our knees quickly. So He loves us enough to say, you know, I need to transform you some more. Oh, turn up the heat a little bit. A little pain. So if you're running an organization, you know, and you know how God works, you know his, the rules of His backyard You know, and you know when you hire somebody, you know, unless I have a specific directive from God to hire this person in pride, probably not real smart. It's probably going to just cause you a lot of additional pain that, unless you just need it, you know, you could bypass that and you could go on and your organization would run a little bit smoother. You want that? Yeah, I want that. Some of you, I guess, want the pain, but... So this, to me, is one of the great texts. I remember, I'm out of time, real quickly. I'll tell you one thing, and then they can scold me later. I conducted a planning session for a client 15 years ago, something like that. And I had come to this understanding about what strategic planning really was. And so this was the first client I ever tried to go in and present this idea to them. So we're around this table, getting ready to do the strategic plan, you know, about how we're going to make a bunch of money next year. And I read this text to them and explain to them. And all these are professing Christians. Everybody around the table is a professing Christian. And so I read this text to them explain to them what I believe God's shown me through this, that planning is a process of discerning his will. And they're looking at me like, huh? In fact, it was such a disconnect that we really couldn't even go forward with it. They had no ability to connect with the idea. Every one of these people was very active in their churches and unable to see this. So I told my client later, I said, you know, we've got to do a lot of praying and seeking the Lord on how to work through the pride in this organization because there's a lot of presumption going on here that you guys are here about money. You're not here about money. You're here to do the Lord's will. and That's your job and planning is to discern it and light up with it. And as you do that, one of the signs, one well, of the indicators... Will be, you will be profitable. But profit can't be the goal, it's got to be the byproduct. We've got to humble ourselves and seek his will and line up with him. So, what's the one thing? Humility. Humility. That's the transcendent value. If you bring that into your home, to your marriages, to your churches, to your businesses, to your government, every area of life... That is a transcendent value that will bring you great fruit and great blessing to you and all that you serve. May the Lord give you grace to do that. This is a copyrighted program of Go Strategic, Santa Rosa, California. Unauthorized reproduction is prohibited. Go Strategic is an international nonprofit organization that educates and equips leaders and others for effective service and leadership using biblical principles. For more information, visit us online at www.gostrategic.org.